The following message is recorded at City Light Church in Vicksburg, Mississippi. City Light Church exists to shine the light across in our city and world through the transformed lives of its people. For more information on the church and its ministries, please visit www.citylightvicksburg.org. Scripture reading comes from John 1, 35 through 51. The next day, again, John was standing with his two disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And he said to them, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came, and they saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two had heard John speak and followed Jesus, was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming towards him and said, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. How we doing? So we want to get into John chapter 1, um, talking about this morning, followers, Jesus' followers, all right? And so I've been spending a lot of my time for the last... 10 years um, of my professional career. For those of you all who don't know, I am, I am a bivocational pastor. This is uh, one, of two, one of two vocations that, I'm, uh, that I have to fulfill in my daily week. Uh, the other vocation is uh, geared prim- primarily with the Army Corps of Engineers, and, and there's, some, there's some crossover in that. But I've spent the last um, 10 years of my life uh, focused in, in some shape, form, or capacity in that day job, so to speak, with the concept and the ideal of leadership, all right? The concept and the ideal of leadership. And, and one of the things that they talk about when they talk about leaders is that there's one thing that, there's one thing that all leaders must have, right? Anybody know? Followers. All leaders must have followers. If you don't have anybody following you, you're not a leader. And so much of the time that I've had the opportunity and the privilege to study leadership and be, and be trained on leadership and be educated on leadership, it has been spent thinking about what is it that leaders must possess that make people want to follow, 
all right? And there's a lot of things. There's, 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 the, there's competency, there's humility, there's emotional intelligence. In other words, being in tune with, with how others see you and not just simply how you see others. A lot of us think about how we see others, but very rarely think about how people see us, right? Or don't care about how people see us, right? And so, and so leadership is thinking about that. Emotional intelligence being locked in in terms of how people and how the world sees you. But here's the thing about it. You can do all of that, right? You can be competent. You can, you can be uh, very well in tune with, with who you are emotionally, self-aware, okay? You can, you can, and also, you can be the type of person that, that people gravitate towards and want to follow, and yet, and still, it can be really, really hard trying to get people to follow. Extremely hard trying to get people to follow. To say, hey, this is the direction we're going, right? And have everybody in the room say, all right, let's go. Let's go that direction. You're the leader. Most of the time, there's always kicks and, and pushbacks, right? And, and, and so when I look at this text, what I'm captivated by is the fact that Jesus, as he begins to recruit his followers, they follow like so easily. I mean, there's like very little resistance involved in Jesus calling forth this group of people. And so we know because, because we know that this isn't always the case throughout the book of John as we're going to discover. That everybody isn't so willing. Everybody isn't so just gung-ho as soon as Jesus says, hey, follow me. Everybody's like, yeah, I'm on board. So, so we know that's not the case. So what we will be witnessing as we read through this text and what I need you to understand as we're working through this text is that this is something very supernatural that's happening. God is turning hearts and turning hearts in a way that we can't quite grasp, all right? He's moving people off of their spots, so to speak and bringing them to himself. He's creating followers. And so we want to talk about this supernatural demonstration that's on display with people following Jesus. People following Jesus. There's, there's four points I want to make this morning to you. One is followers desire to actually follow Jesus. Should go without saying, but we'll, we'll talk about that. Followers desire to actually follow Jesus. The second point is that followers desire to see others actually follow Jesus. Followers desire the glory of Christ over the glamour of idols. And then finally, we'll close out with followers will see dreams fulfilled. And all of this, I hope and pray, will make sense by the time we get to verse 51 and conclude for this morning. But let's talk about followers' desire to actually follow Jesus. What we see unfolding in these scriptures that we just read, that Darren read for us, uh, knowing very little, seeing even less, only hearing the testimony of others, these men step away from their old lives, they leave them behind, and they begin to follow Jesus. Knowing very little about the man, seeing even less about the man, they just hear about him and they follow him. Verse 35 says, the next day again, Jesus was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, I'm sorry, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, behold, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. And that is the initiation of two of Jesus' first disciples. They literally hear John say, behold the Lamb of God, and they say, I'm out of here. I'm going with him now. 
Who knows how long they've been walking with John, and who knows how long that they've been considered his, his mentees, if you will, his, his disciples, so to speak. Who knows how long they've been actually submitting themselves to his tutelage and submitting themselves to his leadership and his guidance. But when John points to Jesus and he says, behold the Lamb of God, they say, all right, John, it's been great, but we're going with this man now. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, coming you will see. So they came and they saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. And the next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee and he found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, it was Jesus himself who would later say in this same book, I'm sorry, it was Jesus himself who would later say in this same book, the gospel of John chapter 10, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. My followers actually follow me. They know my voice. When, when my voice is spoken, when my voice is made known, the spirit moves and they respond. And so here, Philip responds. He found, he found, he found Jesus, rather, or Jesus found him, said to Philip, follow me, and he immediately follows Jesus. You got you got also in this camp, you have the two individuals that are walking with John. And, and immediately when John says, there's the Lamb of God, they follow him. I'm sorry, I meant to tell you guys, by the way, that I went from verse 39 to verse 43. I probably should have told y'all that, but probably confused y'all. That's okay. But notice when they come in contact with the Savior that it becomes clear that they hear his voice. They believe him to be who he is declaring himself to be. They lock themselves in with him and they follow him. Now, what is most interesting about cultural Christianity is this, is the amount of people who claim to follow Jesus, but who won't actually follow Jesus. So, for example, when you look at uh, the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke, verse, uh, chapter 9, verse 57, it says this, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. I'm in. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds have air. Birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me go first. Let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom. In other words, go and follow me. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord. But first, let me say farewell to those in my home. And Jesus said, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Cultural Christianity has created this climate where you have millions of people who say, I'm following Jesus until Jesus actually says, follow me. And then they say, well, you know, I got a couple of things over here to do. I, need, I got some stuff that needs to get done over here. Got a few things I need to tend to. But when I tend to those things, then I'm going to really follow you. Does that make sense? Followers of Jesus actually follow Jesus. Followers of Jesus are not simply just in declaration alone following him. Followers of Jesus are in declaration and, in fact, in action and in submission following him. 
As you can see in these, as you can see in Luke 9, what I just read, it's not, it's not, it's not suitable and it's not fitting, and it's not, it's frankly just not good enough to tell Jesus, yes, I will follow, and then continue to go in your own direction. Jesus says that if you say you're gonna follow and then you go in your own direction, then you're not worthy of following. Does that make sense? But not only do followers of Jesus actually follow Jesus, but followers of Jesus actually desire others to follow Jesus. So a day after John testifies to the divine, we talked about that last week, the divine and saving nature of Jesus with the words, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, John testifies again as he sees Jesus again. And he says, behold the Lamb of God, a second day in a row. Behold the Lamb of God. So this man was so captivated by God-given mission to make the Lamb of God known to the world that he was willing to lose followers in order to have them follow someone greater. And the trend continues in the other people that Jesus runs into and encounters. When they begin to follow Jesus, as, we, as we're working our way through this story in, first, in, in John chapter 1, when they begin to follow Jesus, not only do they follow Jesus, but they also go and encourage others to come and follow Jesus, don't they? So we look at, for example, Andrew. He points to his brother, Simon Peter, and he says, come and follow Jesus. Philip points back to Nathaniel, goes to Nathaniel, and he says, come and see, come and follow Jesus. John, as a follower of Jesus, goes to his others, goes to the ones that are following him, and he says, no, stop following me. Go and follow Jesus. Because following Jesus brings the type of joy, brings the type of honor, brings the type of wonder that is significant enough where it will drive you to seek out others in order that they might know and enjoy the same things that you are enjoying. Does that make sense? This is what happens when you come in contact with the Redeemer of the world. This is what happens when you come in contact with the Savior of the world. We point others to him. That joy, that honor, that, that wonder drives us to tell other people about him. So here's a challenge right now for us all in the room. Who right now is pointing people back to Jesus? Who in the room is pointing people back to Jesus? And here's a question. If we are not and yet we are following Jesus, then we must answer the question, why not? Why aren't we pointing people back to Jesus? What are you sharing in your weekly rhythm? What are you pointing people to? You're pointing them to something, right? Political opinions, maybe, sports, work-related stuff, entertainment, Beyonce and Jay-Z's twin babies, right? What are, you, what, are you, what are you pointing them to throughout your week? Not that there's anything wrong with that. You want to talk about Jay-Z and Beyonce's twin babies? Have at it. But if we're willing to share all of that and not share Jesus, then we must challenge ourselves and ask ourselves why not. What's going on in here, Right? Is the joy of the Lord, is, is, is the joy that comes with following Jesus evident in your life in such a way that it drives you to point others to Jesus? Is the honor 
of following Jesus evident in your life in such a way that it drives you to point others to Jesus? Is the wonder of following Jesus, the wonder of Christ himself, evident in your life in such a way that it drives you to point others to Jesus? Or is the light so dim and everything else is radiantly bright that that ends up consuming your pointing and consuming your conversation? Followers of Jesus desire to see others actually follow Jesus. And it's because of what Jesus does in the heart of those that are following him. And so as we think about where we are, right, and as you're working through this in your own soul, if you say to yourself, man, I don't ever really feel like pointing people to Jesus. I'm, I'm just, you know, I'm just like happy that I'm holding on myself then this warrants, right, this warrants real and earnest prayer, doesn't it? This warrants you spending some time before the Lord, you and the Lord, spending some time and praying and wrestling with that and asking the Lord, Lord, restore the joy of my salvation. Does that make sense? Give me, satisfy me in you. Give me a hope in you that extends beyond Political, uh, political news that extends beyond entertainment news, that, it, that extends beyond sports. Give me something in you that reaches past all that, right, that drives me to want to point people to you. The third thing this morning is that followers look beyond the glamour. Well, they look beyond the glamour of idols in order to look to the glory of Christ. They look beyond the glamour of idols in order to look to the glory of Christ. So after Jesus calls men to himself or after they are pointed to Jesus by someone else, they in turn go out and find others and they tell others the same thing that Jesus told them, come and see, right? Come and see. Come and see. Says, Lord, we, Lord where, where, you, where you stand? Jesus responds, instead of saying, hey, well, I'm staying at, you know, such and such and such chambers, or I'm staying at so-and-so-and-so's house, he says, come and see. That's deeper than just saying, hey, here's my address. He's saying, come walk with me. Does it make sense? Does it make sense? Enter into fellowship with me. Come on this journey of life with me. Lay yours down and come with me. Come and see. And so as he's saying, come and see, and others are telling others, come and see. Like Philip, when he says to Nathaniel in verse 45, Philip found Nathaniel and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathaniel said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, come and see. But let's just pause for a moment, moment on Nathaniel's words. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip's explanation to Nathaniel is that this is definitely the one who we have been waiting for. The one to follow Moses, according to Deuteronomy 18, and we actually talked a little bit about that last week when we talked about John being confused with being the prophet, right? And so, and so we talked about Jesus actually being the prophet that brings deliverance to his people once and for all. 
Not a deliverance that will be temporary and then they end up going back into bondage, but a deliverance that will be once and for all. Philip sees him as that prophet. Philip sees him as the suffering servant, according to Isaiah 53. Philip sees him as the offspring of the first woman who it was declared would crush the head of the serpent in Genesis chapter 3. Philip sees that when he looks at Jesus. Nathaniel at this point is having a bit of a struggle because he himself is saying, leaning into Philip's conversation, but he's from Nazareth? You got to understand what Nazareth means. You know, I mean, all of this sounds good up to the point that you said that he was from Nazareth. That doesn't really make a whole lot of sense to me, Philip. I mean, what, what, what good can actually come out of Nazareth? And according, according to the College Press NIV commentary, it says this about Nazareth. Nazareth was a no place. N-O, not K-N-O-W where you get knowledge. N-O, it was a no place. It it was not something to to boast about, to brag about. It is never even mentioned in the Old Testament. Nazareth gets no publicity. It's not mentioned in, in, in much of the major Jewish writings. It's not mentioned even in any extent in much of the pagan writings. Nazareth is literally ain't no town. Jesus' residence in Nazareth is, is, like, is like the NIV tells us, or the, or the uh, College Press NIV commentary tells us, Jesus' living or residence in Nazareth is like his birth in a stable. It's like his infamous crucifixion. It's like his infamous burial in a borrowed tomb. All aspects of the offense of the incarnation, even including the very town that Jesus lives in, is nothing to write home about when you talk about it in natural terms. Does that make sense? So it is as if someone came to you and said, listen, I have found the one. I found the one. And you say, okay, go on, go on. Let's talk about this. Let's talk about this. And you say, man, listen, he is the one that has come to redeem all of us. And you say, okay, well, what, are you talking about City Light Church? He's coming, to re- he's coming to give us some, you know, free coupons, uh, free meals? No, 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 no. He's come to save all of us, okay? Um, you're talking about, you know, my house, and all, all of us, you know, we're good friends. No, no, the entire world. He has come to save the entire world. Oh, really? Okay, do tell, do tell. Tell, tell me about this guy. Um, and yeah, man, he's come to save the entire world. And, and, and get this, he's from, he's from Meadville, Mississippi. He's saying, I learned this this week talking to my brother who's from Meadville, Mississippi. They got two stoplights in Meadville, and he's not sure yet. He said he, he has to go back and pay attention the next time he goes. But those two stoplights used to actually go to just yellow at 5 o'clock. That's how little, little action they had going on in Meadville, that they would stop going from red to green at 5. You know what I mean? That, that normally happens at midnight, right? So little action going on in Meadville, they could turn them off at 5 o'clock, just let people just pass through however they want to. 
Meadville has about 500 people. I was so intrigued by this discussion. I, went, I actually went and looked at the population. Meadville has about 500 people. 500 people. It's a blow by town. And so if someone says, yes, the Savior of the world, he's in Meadville, you're going to be like, well, wait a second. I mean, where, where is, how is he getting his, you know, his master, master education in redemption there? You know, what, what's going on? Who, who's he sitting under in Meadville? What, what great theologian, what, what, what great teacher has he been studying under in Meadville? I'm, I'm having trouble processing this. There's, there's, there, there's not a whole lot of big things going on in Meadville, so I don't understand how you were able to come up with this guy and tell me that this guy is supposed to be the savior. Now, if you would have said New York City, okay, well, yeah, sure. There's all kinds of stuff going on in New York. If you would have said L.A., yeah, sure, there's all kinds of stuff going on in L.A., so certainly God would, cre- certainly God would do something there, but, but Meadville? Shout out to my brother Clint. What is the significance of this? Here's the thing that Jesus does. As a matter of fact, even when you think about Bethlehem, right? Jesus is born in Bethlehem, but he spends a great deal of time in Nazareth, so he's tied to Nazareth. And even Bethlehem is like Duck, Mississippi, right? It's, 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 not, it's not, neither one of them are grand. Most of y'all have never even heard of Duck. You're trying to figure out where it is. That's an actual town in Mississippi. But, but it's neither one of them are grand. But this is what the Bible says about Bethlehem in Micah chapter 5. It says, Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid upon us. With a, rod, with a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, for you, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. He said, there is one coming forth out of old little Bethlehem. And so this is what Jesus does. Jesus, from the beginning of his life on earth to the end of his life on earth, demonstrates a passion and regard for small beginnings, for the overlooked, for the disregarded, for the discounted, for the underwhelmed and the underprivileged. He takes David from the small town of Bethlehem as well. And he takes the smallest and the least regarded of his, of his brothers and he makes him king. He sends, weary and a, he sends a weary and disgraced old man back into Egypt with a stick and tells, and tells him, let my people go. Tells Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, let my people go. He takes a small, unimpressive nation of people that we otherwise know as Israel and says, you are going to be my people. I'm going to set my affection and my love on you. I'm going to be with you. I will be your God. He even says of us, he even says of the makeup of the global church, 
in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, that for consider your calling, brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God, and because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Jesus is constantly demonstrating greatness through the least of things, including the very town that he lives in. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? So if you would allow me for a second to share one of my greatest displeasures with the prosperity gospel. One of the most devastating things about it is that it sends people into the lap of luxury to find Jesus. It sends people into glamour to find Jesus. It sends people to the highest seats and the highest places to find, to find Jesus. It sends people to the places with the brightest lights, and it says, that's where Jesus is, with the healthiest people, and it says, that's where Jesus is, with the wealthiest people, and it says, that's where Jesus is. But when you look at the totality of the New Testament, you realize that Jesus is always around the exact opposite people. He's he's dwelling amongst the small-timers. He's dwelling amongst the disenfranchised. He's dwelling amongst the broken. He's dwelling amongst the hurting. He's dwelling amongst the poor and and those that don't have. And so we send people on a wild goose chase to find Jesus where he oftentimes has very little presence. And even a worse thing that we do is we tell them that if they themselves are not in those places, then they themselves do not have Jesus. That's the danger. That's the danger. We preach the kind of gospel that we can't take to our brothers and sisters that are struggling in China. We preach the kind of gospel that we cannot take to our brothers and sisters who are struggling in Africa as as Boko Haram. The terrorist organization swoops into our Christian schools in Africa and takes 200 of our our beautiful African girls and does all sorts of unmentionable things with them. What what can we do with that if if, if we don't recognize that Jesus is in that? He's there with them. He's that's where he is in the broken places. Not simply in the places where everything is good. What can you do with that when, when, when hurt comes to your home? Jesus being in Nazareth and people saying, what's the big deal? I can't, I can't believe a Savior would come out of Nazareth. Jesus being in Nazareth means that he literally cares about the smallest people in the smallest places. He cares about the people in Meadville, Mississippi, and not just the people in the glamorous New York City. Does that make sense? Lastly, followers will see dreams fulfilled. Followers will see dreams fulfilled. So in this text, 
Jesus is speaking in a way that, that would make a Jewish theologian's head explode. Because he is, he is so crafty with his words. He speaks to Nathaniel by saying amazing things that are even more amazing after, we, after, we get, after we're giving the, con, the context behind them. Take his last words to Nathaniel. And the last words that we will be reading this morning. Jesus blows Nathaniel's mind with his visual knowledge and insight of Nathaniel under the fig tree. So much so that Nathaniel immediately calls him the son of God. So Jesus says to Nathaniel, um, yeah, before, even before Philip called you to me, I saw you, right? I saw you under the fig tree. When you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And the point of making sure he says the fig tree is so that Nathaniel knows, right, that he saw him. He could say, I saw you under the tree. You're like, yeah, which tree, right? But, 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 but by him saying, I saw you under the fig tree, Nathaniel knows exactly where he was before Philip even came and got him. And here this man knew where I was. And so it, sh- it shakes Nathaniel. And he says immediately, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. He's blown, he's blown away by it. So, so, so there's a couple of things that ends up happening in this text. One is that Nathaniel's name is known by God, and that blows his mind, right? Because, because even before Philip says, hey, by the way, here's Nathaniel, Jesus is already saying, hey, Nathaniel, I saw you under the fig tree. So his mind is blown because he sees or he, he knows Nathaniel's name, so that blows his mind. But also, his mind is blown because he literally sees into Nathaniel's life. He sees him under a fig tree, and so that blows his mind. But neither one of those are the things that are most mind-blowing about the text. What's most mind-blowing about the text is the third thing that Jesus sees. He has a read on Nathaniel's expectations. He has a read on all of their expectations. In verse 50, he says, Jesus answered him. You know, Nathaniel says, man, you must be the son of God. And Jesus says, come on, seriously? That's not what he said. He said, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? Is that what amazes you? You could have got a prophet to say that, right? There's been prophets who have declared location and where you are and things of that nature. You're only, this, you're only scratching the surface of my divinity by me saying that I saw you at the fig tree. And this is what he gives them. He says, I'm going to give you a little bit more to let you know exactly who I am. He said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God descending and ascending and descending on the Son of Man. That's not at all maybe what you might think it is. But let's start with the fact that Jesus' response to, to Nathaniel is that you are shooting too low. If you think that, that, that because I saw you at the fig tree, that that's enough to declare me the Son of God, you are shooting too low. The Son of God is more than a prophet. The Son of God is more than a soothsayer. 
The Son of God is Savior and Deliverer, okay? And so take that into account when you listen again to Jesus' words, when he says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus is connecting the dots here between the Old Testament and the New Testament, all right, in two very particular ways. The first way is he's connecting the dots with Jacob, and the second way is he's connecting the dots with Daniel. Both of them are dreams, all right? Both of them are visions. So the first vision is Jacob's vision, the son, the son of Isaac, who was the son of Abraham. In other words, Jacob is a part of God's uh, lineage of promise that leads all the way back to this Jesus that we're talking about, okay? And so in Genesis chapter 28, this is what is said about Jacob. So Jacob has a moment where he, you know, because Jacob is kind of a huckster, he's a trickster, and he's trying to get out of town because he's done some things that he thinks is going to get him in trouble with his brother Esau, okay? And he has a dream in the middle of that time. This is what the dream is entailed of. Let's, let's start with verse 10 of chapter 28. It says, Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. He came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and laid down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God, listen, were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring, and your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So let's listen to that. There's a dream that Jacob is having, and you've heard of this, right? Jacob's Ladder. Anybody heard of that? Somebody, some of you guys are like, I've seen the movie. No, I'm talking about in the Bible, before the movie, there was actually a ladder, all right? Jacob had a vision, and this vision had, in this vision, there was a ladder from earth to heaven, and this, this ladder that was connecting earth to the heavens had angels descending and ascending. And in this vision, as Jacob is dreaming this and seeing this, he hears God repeat the covenant promise that he gave to his granddad. Okay? He ties this vision to that covenant promise. So, here's the significance of this piece to John chapter 1. Jesus says that you shall see what? Angels doing what? Descending and ascending Theologians even have some thoughts about the mixing of the order because he changes the order, but we're not going to get that deep this morning. But the idea that you shall see angels descending and ascending, not on the ladder, but on who? On the Son of Man. Why? Because the ladder is the Son of Man. Jesus connects us back to heaven. Are you tracking with that? And so he's saying, you think that you saw something because I told you that you were sitting under a fig tree. But what you don't understand is that I am the fulfillment of Jacob's vision. I am the fulfillment of the dream. I am the one who connects you back to God the Father. 
Does that make sense? Which is way bigger than me seeing you under a fig tree. Are you tracking with that? But not only does he say that, hey, I am the one that connects you, and he places himself, the son of man, in place of the ladder that's connecting heaven and earth, but he also uses the terminology son of man for the first time. And that's unique language. Because the other time that we see it mentioned is in another dream, the dream that Daniel's having or the vision that Daniel's having in Daniel 7. And in Daniel 7, verse 12, it says, and he dreamed and behold, there was a ladder. I'm sorry, Jacob, verse 13. I was still on, still on Jacob. So verse 13 of chapter 7, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him was given, listen, dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And so Jesus says, that son of man that Daniel saw was me. And that ladder that was tied and associated with the covenant promise that had been spoken out of the mouth of my father, that vision, I'm the fulfillment of. So both of those visions, both of those dreams, you shall see the fulfillment of in following me. Does that make sense? You shall be a part of a kingdom that knows no end. You shall be part of an everlasting covenant. You shall be part of an eternity or an eternal life. Are you, are you tracking with that, folks? It's bigger than me seeing you under a fig tree, Nathaniel. I have come to give you eternal life. I have come to give you a home and an eternal kingdom. And so where, where, where does the benefit, what, why do we follow him? Do we follow him because he, can give, because he can give us a few insights in terms of what's going on in this life? Because he can point us in a few different directions, give us a few helps? No, we follow him because he is the fulfillment of the greatest of dreams, the dreams of the kingdom the dreams of eternity, the dreams of life. He is the fulfillment of that. In him we find our end. That's why you follow. That's why he tells Nathaniel to come, come and see. That's why he tells Philip to come and see. That's why he tells Simon Peter to come and see. Does that make sense, folks? So let me say, we don't, follow simply because he sees things. We follow because he is the fulfillment of all things. All of our hopes and dreams have their final end and final resting place in the Son of Man, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. So follow him. Follow him. Follow him. If there are some in this room who have, who have not turned your lives over to him, Turn your lives over to him now. Turn your lives over to him today. Trust him by faith. Turn from your life of sin, doing things your way. Turn to him. Follow him. If there are some in the room that say, well, I'm following him, just not doing a very good job of it. 
right? Then, then, then follow him by learning of him. Begin, start with, un, start with daily, opening up this book, opening up these scriptures and reading of him so that you might learn how to follow him more. Follow him by pouring yourself out in prayer to him and asking him to help you follow him. Follow him by asking for the help of his spirit so that his spirit might come and help you follow him. Follow him by, by denying the world's influence that tells you, no, this is the way that you should go. No, by learning of Jesus and reading about Jesus, you learn that this is the way we should go. So follow him through that. And then most importantly, follow him by denying yourself. Jesus says that if any man should follow me, if any man should come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. But through all these things, let us follow. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we love you, we thank you, we give you all the praise and glory and honor. We need your help, God, to follow you. So I pray for the soul that has not yet come to faith and repentance in the room, those that do not know you. And I ask, Lord God, that you would, in fact, help them this morning turn their hearts towards you in faith and repentance to confess their sins to you, Lord God to acknowledge you as Lord and Savior, master of their lives, and to begin the process, the steps of living out that declaration daily with the help of your Spirit. Lord God, we ask for that help today. We ask for the move of the Spirit on this room today. Father, for those of us that are following you, Lord, but yet we are weary and we're struggling and we're stumbling and we're fumbling all over the place, we ask for yet again the Spirit's help to help us, Lord God, follow you, Lord God, all the healthier, all the more, Lord God. Help us follow you. Help us, help us turn down the volume of the world, Lord God, and turn down the volume of our own selfish pursuits and selfish ambition. And help us, Lord God, turn up the volume of your wisdom that is found in Scripture and turn up the volume of, of the voice of your spirit, Lord God, and help us move in the direction that you have called us, Lord. Help us follow you. And, Lord, when we fall short, Lord, let us not, let us not throw our hands up, Lord God, and quit the race, Lord, but let us run back to the cross. Let us find the mercy. Let us find the grace. Let us find the forgiveness that is there and that is always there, Lord God, and let us rise back up with the help of your spirit and through the grace that you've offered, Lord God, and let us run hard and follow again. Father, help us, Lord God, live out this calling to follow you. These things we ask and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This message was brought to you by the family and friends of City Light Church. For church worship times, directions, support opportunities, or other ministry information, please visit www.citylightvicksburg.org.